Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in each episode of this podcast, I look at one small chunk of American writing using the Library of America as my as my foundational source materials. And currently, we're looking at the works of John Kenneth Galbraith from the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so far, they've only Library of America has only published one volume of his writings, but there's certainly other stuff. We, we'll, we'll see if we get a second volume of his of his writings. Uh, these are some of his most famous works, though, so this might be all we get. Anyways, in the last episode, I, it was a really long episode where I went into kind of my goals for this whole series of 10 episodes in which I'll kind of explore Galbraith's writings and give my thoughts on it. Um, and then I went into the first half of his, of his book, American Capitalism, the first book in this collection. Um, and I introduced a little bit about the idea of countervailing countervailing power, the problem of power in the American economy. Let me just quickly go over this argument again because it's, it's so good. It's essentially, he starts off by saying Americans are feeling anxiety, economic anxiety, despite this post-war boom, largely because the reality of their economy, which they're conscious of on some level, doesn't fit their ideal image, which is kind of drawn from classical economics, this idea of competition. In reality, in most of the American economy, you have oligopoly, essentially corporate power, um, essentially monopoly, but you know, broken up in a handful of firms that control prices, control supply chains, and therefore have an uh, incredible amount of power over the economy. This is uncomfortable to people, uh, maybe conservatives, because it seems to expose a, the false mythology of American capitalism because the only way you can confront that power is with states, and that's just the next step to socialism in their view. And then from the liberals, it's the problem just of, of power itself, brute power, and then how do you control that and minimize that? And so I go into that detail quite a lot. And I also talk about something he goes through a lot in his later works, like the affluent society and the new industrial state, where Galbraith says, you know, there's actually, it almost has to be this way. You can't really have a competitive model in the auto industry or the steel industry or, or especially with natural monopolies. You know, that's something I didn't talk about last time, but that's part of the story as well. In the natural monopolies, you can either have them dominated by one or two firms or you have to have a state-run system. I mean, that's, you know, there's no reason to have five different electrical wires going into your house and then you pick which one you want. A competitive model doesn't work for natural monopolies, obviously. So what do you do then? You can either grant one company essentially monopolistic rights or a handful of them, you know, like cable companies essentially have that in their own markets. They control prices. They, they you know, control content, all that kind of stuff. They have a lot of power in the, in the media, in entertainment. Or you could have a state-run thing, and that, that's a significant difference, it seems to me. Um, but in practice, maybe it's not that big of a deal. You know, Maybe we'd still have a thousand channels if it was state, a state-run 
cable companies, you know, delivering. If it was the state delivering cable services, you'd still have a competitive market for television programs, I suppose. I don't know. Um, it's kind of like with healthcare, right? If you have the single payer system, it doesn't mean you're not going to have different doctors and hospitals. That's what Taiwan has. Taiwan has a single payer system and every hospital and, and clinic is essentially independently run and they just get paid by the government. So I don't know. The, I, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not talking about entertainment itself, though. I'm just pondering like the delivery mechanism, right? The natural monopoly of the cable that literally goes into your house or the Internet line or whatever it might be. With those natural monopolies, it makes sense to have just a handful of firms running it. Also, it makes sense because, you know, only large firms can harness the technological and organizational expertise needed to develop new products, to organize a complex economy, to organize the supply chains, to do all the transportation stuff, to marketing. And that, you know, that's why the competition model simply doesn't work for cars. And I gave this example last time, you know, if I just decide one day, let's say I'm a brilliant mechanic and I can build a car, you know, and it's a great car. It's got a lot of innovative ideas or whatever. It doesn't matter because I am not going to be able to compete with Ford or General Motors or Toyota. Just in terms of, of expertise, they have vast amount of capital. They have a vast amount of, ex and beyond that, they have knowledge far beyond what any one person can have through their institution. And therefore, there's an, a disadvantage to that. Um, you know, all, all wealth is, is collectively created. We've known this forever. Um, and it's only becoming more and more true. You know, the individual inventor, artist, you know, isn't that relevant anymore. You know, I mean, maybe in art or authors, you can make a case for still the individual effort, the importance of it. You know, the author putting a stamp on the book, he really creates that. It's all his words, just him and his computer. But, you know, in almost every other area of life, it's all collective. And that gives a sizable disadvantage to anyone starting out because they wouldn't have that. It actually is, is opposite of like the neoclassical view, which says that like, these big institutions will tend to just topple over and become inefficient and, and, and will demand a kind of a, almost like a frontier kind of rejuvenation. That doesn't really happen for Galbraith. Instead, you know, it's, it's for, for logical reasons in his view and for demonstrable reasons. He provides a lot of evidence of this, I think. So the point here then in the first half of American capitalism is America's a bit divided between the reality of, of power and then their kind of ideological discomfort with power, a revolution, a constitution based on decentralizing authority to the states, to the different branches of government or whatever, to the people. How can then a democracy stomach so much power in the hands of a handful of business people? And the result of that is a great amount of in, 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 in anxiety. He also talks a little bit about post-scarcity, which I think is relevant. He doesn't use this language of post-scarcity. He calls it the seem, unseemly economics of opulence. But essentially, his point being that the economics of and the economic problems of scarcity are very different than those of some kind of post-scarcity world. When you're in a moment of scarcity, what matters is producing. Is, is what is produced. It's just producing enough for people to survive, enough housing, enough clothing, enough food. In this 
what he'll call later on in his life an affluent society, the problem is like we have so much production and we're so obsessed with production that we end up producing a lot of stupid stuff that doesn't really contribute to the quality of life. And we don't then invest in, you know, other things, right? Like we build malls, but not opera houses. And that's, well, how is that decision made? You know, it's, it's not really a democratic decision. You could say people vote with their feet. Maybe that's true to a degree, but, you know, it's also has to do with the power of corporations that they, they make more money from, from malls than they do from opera houses. Right. So they're going to promote what the malls have to offer rather than what the opera houses have to offer. So you end up with kind of a kind of strange uh, public private differences in investment and things. And he gets into all this in the affluent society. So I don't want to uh, lead with that argument too much. But you also get inequality. Um, you know, of course, we always had inequality, but the inequality becomes a little bit more conspicuous and a little bit more vulgar in a way. You know, it's not your knight who, who through aristocratic blood has domain over a bunch of peasants. It's, you know, it's an inequality in a society that claims to be a democracy, an egalitarian democracy. And that's, and that's going to then disrupt political and economic stability in his view. So this is all stuff he gets to later in his work. So I think there's a lot of previews to his works like the affluent society and the new industrial state here but it's also mostly setting up just the reality of power in the economy which i think is his key contribution here in this book all right moving on chapter nine it's called the theory of countervailing power so here we get um his big thesis in the book and it's kind of obvious if if, if you've been paying attention um where he's going to go with this. Essentially, the only thing that can fight this monster of, of the power of the business class is an equally big monster. Um, it's like I just, uh, it's, it's like Godzilla. You need Godzilla to fight Mothra or whatever. It's, humans can't. Like the individual can't. The market can't. Government can, maybe. That's one solution. That can be a countervailing power. But generally, you're going to get organization on another side. So what could that be? Well, if we're, it depends on what we're talking about, right? If we're talking about the control of the labor, cost of labor, that's one thing that comes with oligopoly is price controls of labor. So how do you fight that? Well, you have to fight that with industrial unionism. Industrial unionism then allows workers to say, no, we are powerful enough to confront you and raise wages to or to keep wages up with productivity or whatever we might our demand might be right if it's about the price of supply the price of raw materials then it could be producers collectives that form that and he does talk about agriculture um, a little bit here in this part of the book um, so this chapter begins with a to kind of a, a restatement of the power, problem of power um, saying the comparative importance of a small number of great corporations in the American economy cannot be denied except by those who have a singular immunity to statistical evidence or striking capacity to manipulate it. In principle, the American is controlled livelihood and soul by the large corporation. In practice, he seems not to be completely enslaved. Once again, the danger is in the future and present still seems tolerable. 
once again, there may be less reasons, there may be lessons from the present, which if learned will save us in the future. That's kind of interesting. He, you know, he's not particularly interested in science fiction, I don't think, but I mean, science fiction paints this picture all the time of the future, of a corporate dominated future, where democracy is destroyed by corporate power. You've seen it a million times in science fiction. And it's always rooted in, in, in realities right around us. But for some reason, we don't see them as dangerous around us. We don't really conceive of Coca-Cola controlling our beverage choices or Nestle or whatever company, right? But we write a science fiction novel set 20, 30 years in the future and suddenly corporations control everything, right? It's like there's a bit of a, ga a gap maybe in in how we actually experience things in our life and how we maybe perceive the way things will be uh, in the future. But we're, we seem to have an awareness of corporate power. And I think today maybe people are much more aware of it than in Galbraith's time, actually. Um, so anyways, what's this theory of countervailing power? Well, competition can't do this, right? Because in the competitive model, the classical Adam Smithian model, you're going to have a large number of producers, a large number of buyers, and none of them can individually affect the market very much. And because of that, you're going to get the invisible hand, supply and demand chart and all that stuff. But in the U.S., you have the producers with this massive amount of power and the individual consumers, you know, working in a competitive model can never really affect the price at all compared to the power of the, of the, of the corporations. So um, what will appear to restrain private power? And he writes, in fact, new restraints on private power did appear to replace competition. They were nurtured by the same process of concentration which impaired or destroyed competition. But they appeared not on the same side of the market, but on the opposite side, not with competitors, but with customers or suppliers. It will be convenient to have a name for this power or for this counterpart of competition. I shall call it countervailing power. To begin with a broad and somewhat too dogmatically stated proposition, private economic power is held in check by the countervailing power of those who are subject to it. The first begets the second. The long trend towards concentration of industrial enterprise on the hands of relatively few firms had brought into existence not only strong sellers, as economists have supposed, but also strong buyers, as they failed to see. The two developed together not in precise step, but in such manner there could be no doubt that one is in response to the other. So if you just take, let's, let's leave labor unions out of it for now, and let's just talk about sellers producers and sellers. So you got the producer, you got the seller, and you got the, the consumer, right? So you got a lot of power built up in the producer sector. I don't know what they're making, cars, right? And then you have, or, or clothing, let's make a clothing, right? And then you have all these little shops. And the shops individually, they have to basically pay the price that the big man clothing manufacturers demand because they have the power. Right? And you can't have power against competition model because the power model will always win out. The oligopoly will win out on setting the price. So what do the shopkeepers do? Well, it doesn't happen like consciously. They don't sit down and say, let's form Sears Roebuck. But in effect, that's what they do, right? Sears is created. And so you get the large seller. You get the Walmart, right? Which then can 
demand because they're such they have such a big market that they can then say we are paying this for that and they can match the power of the producer now the consumer is still on on kind of the shit end of this i guess they could form consumer co-ops or something like that but you know it's not always the end consumer that creates this countervailing power in this case that i'm giving and galbraith gives i think the very same example it's between this like the retailer and the in the producer form the countervailing power now the other great example is unions and that's actually his first um example and you know he he looks at the he's got kind of an argument of negation here where he looks at the one sector that you don't see countervailing power really emerging effectively and that's that's agriculture producers right and why don't you have unions there well because the competitive model is still sort of alive and well in agriculture, he thinks, right? Now we can look, now I would argue that this is, there's other ways we can look at the agriculture issue. Of course, the producers were facing like the railroads and the credit system, which were much more centralized and powerful, right? And the, yeah, yes, it's true. They didn't really form an effective countervailing power as far as I know, but you do get the big ranchers. You get the Bonanza farms out in the West. You, you do have consolidation of agricultural production in the large ranches and you also got the populist movement you have this attempt to form cooperatives so there's a more grassroots working class kind of movement and then there's just a new type of producer that emerges the bonanza farm type of producer so i think there's a case to be made that this applies to agriculture as well even though galbraith is quick to kind of see agriculture in this more romantic sized um, framework of, of a lot of small producers, none of which can control the market in any way. Um, now, does it happen everywhere? No, it doesn't happen um, everywhere. And there is times that it can be stopped or forestalled. Um, he talks about residential building industry as a place that doesn't develop countervailing power. And it's, it's kind of interesting that there are many home builders, many contractors who build homes, and it's, it's not consolidated in quite the same way. Um, now, what's key here? What what makes this work? Well, there's a few preconditions that you have to establish countervailing power, and the most important is the same prerequisites that that create that corporate power in the first place, and that would be things like organization, uh, bureaucracy, um, a certain knowledge base, right? Uh, that ability to organize large things, whether it's a union that can mobilize and organize the efforts of workers, uh, millions of workers or hundreds of thousands of workers in, in an industry, or if it's like, you know, a big cor retail corporation like a Sears or a Walmart um, or whatever, you need to have those same tools. It's essentially the same, same precondition. So if your industry precludes that, developing then it's going to be more difficult to create the countervailing power model and i will say galbraith does have a little bit of a fetish for bureaucracy it's going to be a real issue in um, the new industrial state i don't know how i feel about that i i do think there is i mean i kind of side with the anarchists in in non-bureaucratic options are better that of course power is important Organization is important. I agree with that, but it does, you know, undemocratic bureaucracies 
being the only solution to an undemocratic capitalist system is not the most satisfying, appealing thing for me personally, but, you know, wish in one hand, shit in the other, right? See which one fills up first. Now, there are exceptions to this. There are times in which countervailing power won't emerge or slow down. And the, the time this is most likely to happen is during where you have an inflationary um, environment created by excess demand or increasing demand. And so if you take labor as an example, if you have uh, a whole huge demand for labor because you're in your full employment or whatever, um, so you have a high demand for labor, that is going to push up labor prices. And therefore, that's, of course, going to be against the interest of the power powerful of the power corporation. They, they don't want to pay more wages, but they're forced to buy huge demand. And therefore, unions don't have to be quite as powerful. Don't have to, you know that you can kind of get a moment or a period of time in which the increasing demand provides what countervailing power would have provided anyways, right? And then you could apply the same idea to to you know higher demand for supplies maybe or or whatever it be. So in inflationary moments, you're going to get maybe a slowing down of countervailing power, you know, going forward. Um, but that's that's the main exception to the rule. So if there's periods in which you're, you're out of equilibrium, disequilibrium, then you'll get a breakdown of the system. But in most times where you have a, a degree of equilibrium, you're going to get countervailing power matching power rather than a competitive model. All right. So that's his theory in a nutshell. And that's mostly described in Chapter 9. So if you just read Chapter 9, you can probably get the heart of this countervailing um, power argument, but you don't get, I think, some of the really great um, setup for it, which is about American ideology and the, the, the prevailing wisdom of, of, of the competitive model of economics. All right, chapter 10 then. Uh, so from this point on, we just get into kind of different examples and a little development of it, um, of the argument in various ways. But the argument's essentially been made. Uh, chapter 10 is called countervailing power in the state and you know he kind of has this position that essentially American people are pragmatic about the state yeah you do have the anti-socialist paranoids who think any kind of government role is one step to Stalinism but you know basically since World War II and the New Deal there's been an essential pragmatism about the role of government in the economy and that comes out of the New Deal kind of consensus the New Deal, the Fair Deal. The Fair Deal was what was being pursued while this book was being written. So what is government's role in countervailing power? Um, well, here's what he says. Uh, quote, the role of countervailing power in the economy marks out two broad problems in policy for the government. In all but conditions of inflationary demand, countervailing power performs a valuable, indeed an indispensable regulatory function in the modern economy. Accordingly, it is incumbent upon government to give it freedom to develop and to determine how it may best do so. The government also faces the question of where and how it will firmly support the development of countervailing power. It will be convenient to first look at the negative role of government in allowing the development of countervailing power and then consider the affirmative role in promoting it. So what's he trying to say here is that, at least I think he's trying to say, is, is countervailing power, in a sense, takes some burden off of government. Because if you didn't have it, government would have to step in to raise wages. Government would have, you know, if you didn't have unions, government would have to come in to set wages. 
to some kind of livable level. Um, if you know, or to or to do some some kind of price controls or other distasteful things in a in a capitalist um, society that that people aren't going to want government to do. So, by promoting, allowing countervailing power in some moments and maybe weakening in others, the government can can kind of have this regulatory function without actually doing any direct regulating. Now, this chapter has a really interesting section where he, he, he admits, and it, it's not quite about government, but he admits that there are times in which the original power is created by, by like primary producers and workers. And he gives the examples of craft unions, you know, at a you know, which were strong at a time when you still had not yet had corporate consolidation. And he talks about like farmers co-ops and the granges and things like that. Um, now, I would argue it seems to me the Grange movement and the populist movement developed in response to the power of railroads, something he, he misses. You know, it wasn't just the buyers of grain that were the issue was the railroads. Um, but nevertheless, I think that's interesting that it's not always corporations that create original power. And sometimes the corporations are the countervailing power, right? Um, actually, a, a graduate student friend of mine wrote a book about employer organizations. And I think part of his argument is that they did sort of emerge in response to, to unions. So if you kind of apply the countervailing argument to his, to, it, to his book, it's been a while since I looked at it, but you know, it's, it's not employer organizations first and unions responding to it. It was kind of the other way around. And they actually, they, they actually copied and, and learned from unions in, in how to mobilize and organize in a way. Um, so, he, you know, what can government do? Well, they have antitrust laws, which can undermine countervailing power or original power. Uh, they kind of try to weaken oligopoly. Uh, they can allow unions to form. They can promote the organization of unorganized workers, things like the Wagner Act. So on whole, government has a role here in promoting or disencouraging countervailing power in various ways to affect some kind of end that instead of actually just doing it directly through, through a law, right? And I think governments in the capitalist West like to do that. Like they, they prefer like the planning is done at the corporate level than at the government level, right? So you need the big organizations, you need the Walmarts, the Amazons and things to have the, to do the actual planning that you know Stalin would have done in the Soviet Union. So, um, but you, at the same time, it can be dangerous and you can have disequilibriums and therefore there's a place. So you can look at the Great Depression as a period of, of, of maybe where unions were needed to keep prices, to keep wages high. And, and therefore you get the Wagner Act, which promoted uh, unions, right? And encouraged union formation. Um, so then we get chapter 11, which is uh, the case of agriculture. Um, he talks quite a lot here. I mean, agriculture is something you kept coming back to quite a lot to say this is where the competitive model is strongest. So by talking, by, by approaching it directly in a chapter, he, it gives him a time to interrogate this most fully. Um, he even goes back to the, to Virginia and, the, and tobacco, tobacco farming in Virginia and how you had sort of government policies and inequalities and bargaining power in colonial Virginia between producers and sellers and things like that. 
Um, but he very, very quickly gets to the Grangers and gets to the cooperative movement, uh, the populist movement. And, and his argument here is essentially is that farmers did try and had very bold and creative efforts in creating countervailing power. Um, quote, the, the fact that the modern legislation is now of many years standing, he's talking about the A Agricultural Adjustment Act, um, that behind it is a long history of equivalent aspirations. And there's not a developed country in the world where its counterpart does not exist, that no political party would think of formally attacking it at all, worth pondering by those who regard such legislation as abnormal. So far from being abnormal, given the market power of the industries among which American farmers cited and the probability of fluctuating demand, it is organic. There would be many advantages to recognizing this. If we fail to regard government support to the bargaining power of the farmer and other groups as normal, we will almost certainly neglect to search for the principles that should govern the subsidy of private groups by public power. So let me try to explain this. If you don't know the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and essentially it's the same for all subsequent agricultural policies in the US, is you, the individual competitive farmer, let's go back to the individual competitive farmer, facing stagnant prices or lower prices or higher rail fees, or buyers gouging them, what can the individual farmer do? Well, the individual farmer's really only option is to innovate, to produce more, to take out some more loans, to buy some land, rent some land, to produce more. Now, if all the farmers do that, that's gonna have the effect of overproduction, right? So that's what happened in the Great Depression. And so the Agricultural Adjustment Act s stepped in, instead of giving now, one solution to this would have been what the populace said. is like, we are going to cooperatively sell our crops. We're going to get a higher price by pooling our crops and selling and, and building that countervailing power, right? We will be, the, we'll be a single seller of wheat, and therefore the price has to be what we agree to. That was not the way the U.S. government went in the 30s. Instead, the U.S. government said, okay, we will pay you not to grow as much food we will specifically supplement your income. And that's still the foundation of agricultural policy as far as I understand it in the, in the US. Now, what does this do? Well, it, it, it essentially, here's an example of government fitting in when countervailing power did not exist, doing the function of countervailing power, right? And his point here is like, now we take this for granted. Like, it's so essential to a well-functioning agricultural system that no one, even on the right, opposes it, right? It's like, it's, it's just agreed upon as a, as a central foundation. So that's a good chap chapter. I like that chapter quite a lot on agriculture. Um, so what's next? The role of decentralized decision and the role of centralized decisions. So we have two chapters, one called the role of decentralized decision and the other, the role of centralized decisions. So these are kind of looking at two sides of the same coin. And essentially we're talking here about planning. And, and these chapters are about when government kind of should step in and when it should kind of let things to, to the quote unquote market. And these are kind of disassembled the market idea, but to businesses, like when should decisions be made in business? He gives the example, for instance, of, of housing, where even though there's a public good in, in cheap, affordable housing, 
you know, affordable quality housing, I should say, that's a public good, and it's something that government would, I mean, in a social society, in the Soviet Union, would step in and do, would, would just build it, right? But Galbraith seems to think, well, that's actually better for the decentralized because it is so complex and there's so many day-to-day -day decisions. And in fact, I mean, the irony here is it needs to be so well-planned that it's better not done by government, right? It's like you, you need these producers with these expertise, this capital, this organization, this, this knowledge to do it, right? It's, it's almost like the, you know, the, I don't know if it's really a joke, but kind of an observation we make about existing socialism is that like the people who started these planned economies, they didn't really have the expertise to do this. And that expertise maybe didn't even exist in those countries, take China or, or the Soviet Union. You know, and they started doing this planning without really having that that knowledge base, right? So, where do you see the most effective planning? It, it's really like Amazon, right? And Amazon hired this. I got from that book, The People's Republic of, of Walmart. Amazon actually poached a bunch of administrators and and bureaucrats from Walmart because they were already effective planners. So, if we really wanted to implement like a socialist planned economy, we should hire everyone at Amazon to do it that's and the private sector has better planners than government I, I think is, is a bit of where we where we come to here uh, quote to put the matter bluntly in a parliamentary democracy with a high standard of living there's no administratively acceptable alternative to decision-making mechanism of capital no method of comparable effectiveness is available to decentralize authority over final decisions um, so the downside is if you have power and countervailing power, it does tend to give a lot of authority over social decisions to, to corporations, right? But it's, it's almost like government's ineffective in that. So the chapter, the role of centralized decision maker, decision or the role of centralized decision. Well, what, what can government do then? Well, it, it's kind of the macroeconomic policy, taxes, uh, maybe broadly prices, interest rates, those kinds of Keynesian things um, is still best done by, by centralized decisions. And, and why? Well, we read the Great Crash. We'll talk about that starting the next episode. When you read the Great Crash, it's obvious the downside of giving too much authority to, to banks on these essential issues of of, of stocks, of, of the market, of prices, and all that. He writes, uh, the essence of the Keynesian formula consists in leaving private decisions over production, including those involving prices and wages, to the men who make them now. The businessman's apparent area of discretion is in no wise narrowed. Centralized decision is brought to bear only in a climate in which those decisions are made. It ensures only that the factors influencing free and intelligent decisions will lead to a private action that contributes to economic stability. Thus, in times of depression, increased government expenditures or decreased taxation will cause or allow an increase in demand. The resulting business decisions on production and investment, though quite uncontrolled, will result in increased production and employment. So yeah, just these macroeconomic things. So I'm going to wrap up here. There's one more chapter called The Problem of Restraint, which is essentially about how to prevent inflationary 
um, booms caused by excess demand. And sometimes this is unavoidable, like you have a war, you're not gonna be able to stop it. Um, but generally, when you have this system of power and countervailing power, it's those moments where you have excess demand and inflation that you get uh, a breakdown in the system. And just for stability reasons, I think Galbraith thinks this, the devil you know is a bit better than maybe the devil you don't know. Um, so he, he talks about how, what kind of things can be done to, to control these things, tax, tax policy, in some cases price control. Um, he writes like, when production must be maximized as under the threat of war, the only alternative to open inflation is to remove this, to central authority the power of decision over prices and wages. There is no alternative, however unpalatable this course may seem. Then wage and price controls rather than the now intolerable slack in the economy, the margin of unemployed men in plant, which can no longer be afforded, keep wages from acting on prices and prices from acting on wages. This is the function of these controls. Um, but this is, this is a marginal part of the argument. I think more, more or less the central point he's making is we don't understand our economy. Our, our economic models, our Smithian classical and, and increasingly neoclassical worldview doesn't match the reality of the American economy and for good reasons. It, the classical model just simply doesn't work in a more technological, complex, integrated um, world, right? Like you need to have some central planning, at least in boardrooms, if not in government, because, you know, it takes, you know, a, years and years to develop a new car. So it's not like, oh, people are demanding cars and then businesses create cars to, to meet that demand. That demand has to be pre-created because you spend two, three years developing a new automobile. Right. For, you know, I'm sure they're already developing the 2023 models of, of, of green cars. Um, even though I might don't don't, you know, I don't know the exact details on it, but I'm presuming that's what happens. Certainly it's the case with, you know, with technology, with movies. They plan movies way in advance. And therefore, you, you can't realistically tell me there's a market there. For those goods. Because it's two years out. So I don't buy that there is an existing market that the suppliers are, are, are responding to. And the only way that works is with incredible amounts of planning. And that requires scale. It requires size. It requires organization. And the only way that can't, won't get out of hand is with some kind of countervailing power, right? Now, hopefully that countervailing power, you know, is democratic, has, but I think Galbraith's a little bit skeptical of that because it kind of has to have the same tools as original power in bureaucracy and organization and all that kind of things. Um, so anyways, that's American capitalism. Um, good book. I really do recommend that one. I, I think actually all those books are a lot of fun to read and quite relevant to maybe some of our things we're facing now. So next episode will, will be part one of a two-part look at another short book Galbraith wrote um, called The Great Crash, 1929. Um, so this is a more of a narrative history of the crash of, of the boom of the 20s and then the crash that's causes. But I think it also tells us a lot about another big part of Galbraith's theory, which is the importance of, of kind of, of ideas in how we make economic decisions, the importance of myth, the importance of theology in our economic decisions. And that's certainly true in the 20s, um, you know, 
just like a lot of his evidence in that book just comes from newspapers. And he just cared what do the newspapers say is real is real. Right? It's it's kind of a it's kind of a perversion of of American pragmatism. I mean, American pragmatism is the, the William James idea, you know, what works is true. Right? But in this it's it's what's in the newspaper is true because it's in the newspaper, right? And because people believe it. Right? Not because it works. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily work. It might be really perverse. But anyways, I look forward to talking about that book. It's my least favorite of these four, to be honest, but um, partially because I'm more interested in the Great Depression as a whole than the stock market crash itself. But he does a better job than anyone I, I, that I've read on explaining why the stock market crash is significant as part of the Depression, right? as part of the story of the Great Depression. You know, but I, I just, whenever I ask students, like, what's the cause of the Great Depression? Everyone says the stock market crash. When the stock market crash was a response to an already depressed economy and other things, right? A, a boom, a, 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 an inflationary uh, bubble um, breaking down too. But you wouldn't have had the sudden crash if there wasn't fu fundamental economic problems predating it. So what were those, right? Galbraith gets to that towards the end of the book, but he's still primarily interested in the market and the story of the market. So anyways, that will be the next two episodes looking at... Um, a great crash so i'll see you then um let me know what you think of american capitalism not in general the book american capitalism but i guess if you have opinions about american capitalism let me know what those are is you know is galbraith's theory useful for us i guess that's what i'm most interested in so that's it for now uh thanks for listening i'll see you next Crying too. They can't do the job they wanna do. We can go to the moon and float in space, please.